Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is June 24th, 2014, and this is episode 1374 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, today we will continue our fishing show. This is was planned to be the last episode of the fishing series. It's going to be on unconventional fishing methods, things like limb lining and jug fishing and things like that. It looks like we'll do one more because there seems to be a lot of interest in a show on cooking fish. Uh, fish that you catch or fish that you acquire through barter or purchase or whatever, doesn't really matter, but um, I'm a pretty good cook and uh, we're going to talk a little bit about cooking fish in the final episode in this series. But this will kind of round things out. We've covered shore fishing, we've co covered boats, we've covered guides, we've covered rivers, we've covered lakes, we've covered just about everything you can cover from a standpoint of basic fishing stuff. We haven't got any really deep species-specific things or anything like that. We've talked about structure, finding fish, breeding reports, finding guides, you name it. Uh, so we'll kind of wrap that up today with the unconventional stuff. And I'll tell you why it's not really unconventional, uh, if you really look at history. Anyway, before we do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Jeff, the Berkey Guy Gleason. When are you getting it from the Berkey Guy? <laughs> Berkey Water Filtration Systems, that's what you're going to get from the Berkey Guy. Jeff is awesome. Jeff is the man. Jeff, the Berkey Guy. Uh, and why would you get your Berkey from the Berkey Guy? Well, what are you going to do? Get it from the non-Berkey Guy? Seriously, though, Jeff has a lot of really cool stuff for your prepping beyond just Berkey's. You're going to get the same crazy level of customer service from Jeff that you'd get from him if you buy a Berkey, if you buy any of his other stuff, like a Survival Cave line of foods and everything else like that. Check him out today. His website is Directive21.com. Again, the website is Directive21, the number's 21.com. And uh, one of the things he's got right now that's kind of cool is a primer for your Berkey filters. So when you clean them or replace them, it makes priming a lot easier. Check that out. I'll have a link in today's show notes for that as well. Next up today, Frank Sharp Jr. and Fortress Defense Consultants. Um, there's a lot of people out there that think that the way you take care of your needs for self-defense from a firearm standpoint is you buy a gun, you do whatever you have to do to legally carry or own a gun in your state or place, and then you buy ammo And you're done. Well, you've only got two of the three pieces to the triangle of gun operator efficiency. You've got the gun and the ammo. What you don't have is the operator. You, the operator of that weapon, are not capable of a lot of things that you probably think you are. I really mean that. And I don't just mean hitting a target. I mean responding, reacting, dealing with malfunctions, dealing with stress. We tend to, especially men, men are, this is why men are as good as students as women in, in the firearms world, really. We have this view that, you know, we can just adapt and do whatever we need to do, and every guy has that little bit of a tough guy image of himself, and how would I respond if I had to face down the line, that type of thing. But the reality is, when something goes wrong that's so serious that lethal force is required, the mind stops to take it in. Like, I can't believe this is happening. Those are the seconds when life and death decisions are made, and if decisions aren't made, it can be your death or the death of somebody innocent. And there has to be the training to compensate for that pause. That's the type of training you'll get from Frank Sharp Jr. at Fortress Defense Consultants and his cadre of instructors, where he and his entire uh, instructor base are perpetual students, not just teachers. Check them out at FortressDefense.com. 
Uh, next up today, I want to remind you guys about the Member Support Brigade. Hey, join the MSB. You get a bunch of discounts that more than pay for your membership. You help support the show. 18.3 cents an episode is what comes out to if you do the math. If you're a military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter, all of you guys qualify for a discount. That is first. That is uh, active duty or prior service. Doesn't matter. Email me about your service before you join. Put service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service. One sentence or less is all I really need on your service just to know what you did, and I'll give you a discount code for that. Uh, and uh, you email me at jack at the survival podcast.com. Anybody needs to email me for anything, that is the email address, jack at the survival podcast.com. Little update on the MSB before I do the history segment. A lot of you guys right now are experiencing PayPal stupidity. Yes, PayPal stupidity. They are the best thing I have to be able to run my business. They are still stupid. PayPal is stupid. Um, customer service is exceptionally stupid at PayPal, and they don't know their own policies. So this is what's happening. A lot of you guys are finding out, I'm getting emails from you, that your membership was canceled by PayPal. And you think I did it, you're telling me to run the charge again or whatever. I can't. What happens with PayPal is if you have auto-renew subscriptions, like for the MSB, and you change your payment method, a lot of times they end up basically stopping all auto-payments. Just because your credit card expired and you needed to put the same number, the same one back in, but with a new expiration date or whatever. They just do it. And they don't know they do it. Like somebody knows they do it because eventually I figured out what they were doing. But the customer service person, you call on the phone and ask them what's up, they don't know that they do it because they're stupid. I'm serious. So the bigger issue, so right now, if that happens, all you have to do is log into your MSB account, you get a thing that says you're expired, and you'll have a place where you can add a new subscription. And you can just renew that way manually and start a new auto-renew subscription or what have you, or you can renew by mail with the form. But some of you getting canceled right now got in on a great deal last year. And that deal had not just a discount, but a discount on renewals forever was my obligation to you. If that's you and you got canceled and you want to renew and get that discount that you got locked in and it's PayPal's fault, just email me and tell me the problem and I will give you a new code for your renewal. All right. Anyway, with that, let's get into the year that was the episode, the year 1374. <sighs> you know, late 1300s, you know, you've You got through it. You, you, you did it. You, you know, the Black Death came and went twice, and lots of people died, and there's a smaller population now. And But, man, you, you survived, so it's, you know, clear selling. No. What we have from Alex Shrug today out of his three segments, the three segments are Deadly Rye in the Rhineland, which is about uh, ergot, which is uh, poisoning from a fungus on the rye. Uh, author, author, which is about an author that got a gallon of wine a day, and Black Death, the third wave. That's the one I'm going to read for you. You can look up the other ones if you want to read them for yourselves and know what happened in this year. But the Black Death is back. I mean, won't this thing go away? Eventually it does, but no, it's back again. The third wave of the Black Death has come to Europe, but it will strike unevenly. It will follow a normal disease pattern, which means it follows the merchant shipping beginning with the coastal towns spreading inland. The disease will be far more virulent in the summer, which suggests the disease has passed along when the fleas are most active. Despite the reduction in its virulence, the autoimmune deficiency disease is still deadly. Um, it will hit Flanders area quite hard. Flanders is a coastal region, major merchant port. 
The Black Death will also hit the forces of King Edward III of England fairly hard as he continues his war with France. My take by Alex Shrug. Is there any place one could go to escape the Black Death? Yes, Bohemia. Think Prague and Budweiser beer. Statistics can be misleading. When one hears 25% of Europe was wiped out in the first wave of the plague, that does not mean that you had a 75% chance of survival. The, if the plague hits your town, your town might be wiped off the map, while three other towns missed the plague entirely. The key to survival here is to miss the plague entirely, or nearly so. Bohemia is doing something right from a disease perspective, but it, from an economic perspective, they have been in recession since 1348. No one wants to go to Bohemia. The king's advisors tell him to run away from the plague. There's no better place for the king to run than Bohemia itself. Um, interesting. I'll tell you where I think you'd probably, you know, skate the plague pretty well. Really, really Nordic climates where it's really cold. Fleas don't live. I mean, in northern dry climates, I've never seen many fleas. So, uh, of course, the rat is called the Norwegian rat for a reason, so maybe I'm wrong about that. But I would bet that the, the tribal peoples living in the, the you know slightly more temperate areas of Siberia weren't dealing with a lot of the plague here. Upper Mongolia, that type of thing, were probably not dealing with a lot of the plague, even though the plague came out of the east, out of the, you know, out of the, uh, you know, the Mongol hordes, basically, in China. Uh, those would seem like places. I bet the New World was pretty much void of the plague at the time, right? So the, the right when we were getting sacked over in uh, in Europe, that places like you know where the Aztecs, Incas, etc. came from were probably doing pretty well. And the lesson for me is that the statistics of the, the past are very misleading. There's a lot of things like that. We we've seen it with age. Where they say, well, the average age, you know, was 32 or something like that, and the people died. And it's not. It's not the average age people died. A lot of people died at zero and one, and a lot of women died in childbirth, and most people lived to be in their, you know, 60s and 70s, just like they do today, as long as they had food and shelter. That was the big thing. Did you have food and shelter, or did, you know, not get the black death? Um, so, my, my big thing to take away from this is how misleading Statistics can be in everything from the past to the future. Like, I don't know, global warming statistics are very misleading. Um, again, I found this video by, um, by this, this one guy. I can't remember the name of the channel now. I'll put a link in it today. If you want to know the truth about climate change, watch this video. You can't refute anything this guy has to say. And his point is, yeah, there's climate change. Yep, there's a lot of it. And it has to do with weather. The weather from a place you've probably not considered before. Anyway, I'll I'll make sure there's a link to that in today's show notes if you want to look at it. But uh, anyway, just remember, statistics cannot be counted on. Because the statistics are only as valuable as the angle at which they're presented. All right, so let, let's get into the uh, main topic of today's show. I want to start out with, you know, why would you even bother to do these things? I mean, if you go to... Cabela's or Bass Pro or something like that and go to the fishing section, you'll see aisles upon aisles upon aisles dedicated to the rod and reel. If you go to, um, you know, a, a store that just happens to have a sporting goods department, like a Walmart or something like that, aisles of stuff dedicated to the rod and reel. And you'll see some other stuff too, but it's going to be mostly rod and wheel. If you turn on the outdoor channel or something like that on a weekend and, and watch fishing shows, 
you know, 95% or more of what you see will involve fishing with a rod and reel. If you go out to your local lake or river, you're going to see most people that you see actively fishing in some way, fishing with a rod and reel. So why would you even consider leaving the rod and reel behind? And really, there, I'm even going to talk about actual fish trapping today. But really, the difference is between hunting and trapping. And I know that may seem a little foreign because we're in the fishing world, not the hunting world. But when you're fishing, essentially you're hunting. And you're, 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 you're acting with a hunter mentality. Think about it this way. I'm out with my gun. And I want to kill a deer. So I go out into a place and I either set up an ambush at a place where it looks like it's good deer habitat. That's where I sit out in my boat with my line in the water and some bait on or a float with a minnow or something like that. I wait. It's the same thing. Or I'm actively pursuing structure. So if I'm a bass fisherman, maybe I've got my troller motor in the water. I'm cruising a weed line. I'm looking for structure and I'm casting the different structures and I'm seeking that fish. Okay, now I'm doing spot and stalk. Got it? And in fact... Sometimes, fishing with a rod and reel, you actually do spot and stalk. One of my most effective methods of fishing lakes and ponds, smaller lakes and ponds, as a teenager, and all the way back into being, you know, 10, 11 years old, was to walk where you had the sun right so that you did not cast a shadow. And when the lakes were clear and the ponds were clear in the summer, walk and walk the weed lines and look for bass. Look for a cruising bass, no weight, light hooked worm cast that worm to that bass nice and gentle maybe a little past and twitch it a little bit and let it fall and that bass is hammer it that spot that's as spot and stock as it gets streams for trout same thing you're moving upstream because the fish usually face upstream you're looking for that trout and then you're casting that's spot and stock so it, it, it fishing is a lot like hunting because mainly what we're doing is we're looking either for the habitat and and and, and taking a shot or we're, we're spotting the actual critter and taking a shot, or we're still hunting, we're stand hunting in, in a way. And we're always engaged with one-on-one, -on -one, right? You catch a fish, you got one fish. You bring a fish in, you have to deal with the fish, you put it in the live well, the cooler, or let it go, and then you go after another fish. Yeah, some of the things I taught you guys already, you might catch two or even three fish on one shot, but it's the exception, not the rule. All right, you've already started to go a little bit unconventional there, right? But it's not much different if you're fishing for sand bass and you're using the slab and jig rig that I talked about and you catch two sand bass. It's kind of like you're out hunting for pheasants and two come up and crack, pump, crack, and you knock two birds down, right? You're not going to knock down 50 birds, right? Trapping. And you also have to be there to pay attention. Almost everything I'm going to cover today does not require your attention. Okay, I'm going to talk about a few things where you have to be present for it to work, and they're not quite fitting the trapping versus hunting analog, but most of it fits the, the trapping analog. If I'm trapping, when I was a kid, I used to trap fur. Uh, it was one of the ways that I earned money, and I ran a, a trap line that I could go out and check before school and then after school. And I ran that all through the trapping season. I trapped mostly raccoon. And occasionally I got lucky and got a few foxes and I'd pick up some muskrats and some other things. But my main money crop was raccoon. I ran a trap line with about 40 traps. I used Victor one and a half coil springs. That was my trap of choice, primarily because it was the traps that were laying up in the, the, uh, the attic of the old shanty. 
that my, there were my grandfather's traps, so I could just simply refurbish them and wax them up and brown them and all and get out there and trap. When I would set that trap line, I would go away, and all those traps would be working for me. And when I came back to run that trap line the next time, you know, I might come in the morning and there might be 10 traps set off and seven animals caught. And the other traps were untouched and I could reset everything. And sometimes you'd move a trap if it hadn't picked up anything for you for a while. But the trap worked when I was away and the traps captured more than one at a time. Okay. That is these unconventional methods. And let's talk about the concept of them being unconventional. They're really not unconventional. What they are is traditional. Almost everything I'm going to talk about today has its roots prior to what we think of as modern angling and boats and depth finders and casting rods and spinning rods and different lures and things like that. These are actually most of them anyway traditional methods and some of them are adaptive traditional methods. In other words, there are improvements on a traditional method. Let's start out with one of my favorite unconventional methods. In fact, I would say this is my favorite way to fish that's not rod and wheel. And it is jug fishing. Jug fishing is exactly what it sounds like. We take something like a milk jug. We Maybe we seal the lid on it so that it doesn't pop off with a little bit of silicon. It's not a bad idea. We tie a string. This would be a big old gallon milk jug. Tie a string to the handle. Uh, we get a line that comes off of that jug. We put a hook on it somewhere that stands off uh, a couple feet off the, where the bottom's going to be. Put a weight on it. A lot of people use a half of a brick. I have found one of the best weights, one of the best weights there is for jug fishing, is a one-pound dumbbell from Academy. A one-pound dumbbell from Academy. And you'd say, well, why would you use that? Well, you might have to look if you don't have an Academy Sports and Outdoors in your area, but I get them for about a dollar. A dollar. It's a one-pound weight, very, very compact, and when you roll up your line, it fits nice and, and neat with your, with your jug. So it's one of my favorite weights rather than using the half a brick type of thing uh, because they're cheap, they're effective, and they work well. And it also works really well with what I'm going to tell you next. The way I make jugs for fishing is I don't actually use a jug. I use a noodle. I'm going to talk about noodling in a bit. I don't mean that kind of noodling. I mean it's like a swim noodle. You know, like the, the foam, long pieces of foam that kids float around on in pools and stuff like that. I use a noodle, and I cut them about one foot long. And then there's a hole through the middle, and you run a string through there. I use tarred bank line for all my uh, jug fishing. And you tie that, and that noodle becomes your jug. And if you can get white ones, then you're halfway home because, at least in Texas, oh, that's, I'm going to back up a second. A lot of what I'm going to tell you about today may be illegal where you live. In fact, it might be that everything I'm going to tell you about today is illegal you, where you live if you don't do it exactly right. Jug fishing is one of those things. So I'm going to talk about the regulations that affect me just to give you an idea of what they may be like for you. So in, in Texas... Jugs must be white if they are individual and orange if they are commercial. I'll talk about commercial in a second. Well, you might actually want a commercial license. Not that expensive, at least here. So if they're white, fine. If not, what you do is you just wrap them with white duct tape. Okay? And then your string hangs down and you've got your weight at the bottom. You can use anything you want. But again, I like to use the one-pound dumbbells. And when you're jug fishing, you understand the fish doesn't fight the weight. They fight the jug. They, that's really what it's all about. 
And you bait that, and you set that where you think catfish are. The main fish caught on jugs. Gar are caught at times. Drum, other rough fish. A lot of places, if you happen to catch a game fish on a jug, you're required to release it. Here's another you know, regulation, and this is a serious regulation here in Texas. My jugs have to have my name, my address, and my phone number on them. Every single one. And if it washes off, you're screwed. Now, what I found is that you can write right on the jugs in permanent Sharpie marker, and they stay on just fine. You might want to check them every time you bring them in. This is why I love jug fishing, though. Number one, it works. But number two, it frees me up to hybrid fish, is what I call it. Now, not for hybrid bass, but hybrid fish. In other words, instead of just turning away the rod and reel, the way I used to use this technique, I would go out to a place, chum it up a little bit with some catfish chum. I would set out, and I, when I was doing this, I wouldn't set out, you know, 20 jugs or something like that. That's another thing you have to check. How many jugs can you legally have out at one time? That's going to be a, an issue, too, that you need to check into. So I could set out, you know, half a dozen to a dozen jugs in, in, these, in these areas. I could take my boat and motor over to where I knew was a good spot to fish for the white bass. I'd fish for white bass for a while, 30, 40 minutes, and then I would pull up, And I would go back and check my jugs. And lo and behold, you know, four or five catfish of keeping size would be there waiting for me. And some little ones. You take little ones off, move the jug if you're catching small catfish, especially channels. If you're catching catfish of a certain size consistently in an area, you've got a school of them. And they tend to school in size within a couple inches of each other. So if you're catching 30, 40 little bitty catfish, get the hell out of there. Because that's all you're going to catch for a long time. So you move your, you readjust, redeploy, and go back and maybe fish for some bass for a while, or fish for some white bass, or do something else, do some trolling. Do that for 30, 40 minutes, come back and check your jugs. And that allows you to use like this hybrid approach, like you're hunting and trapping at the same time. Very, very cool. And again, it works. Now, there's a way to make what's called a flagging jug. And I'm going to tell you how to do that. These are very cool, especially a lot of guys, the way they like to jug fish, they like to camp. You go out and you camp. You set your jugs up where you can see them from your campsite on the side of the lake. You go put your jugs out, you come back, you listen to some music, have a beer or two, talk, bullshit, listen, you know, again, listen to some music, hang out, get your campfire going. And when you start seeing jugs flag, you go run your line, you come back in, and you do it all again. You keep doing it till you're bored or till it's too dark that you don't feel like doing it anymore. And you can do it in the dark because it's a good time for catfish. I'll tell you how to do that with flagging jugs in just a second. The way you build these things, though, is you get yourself a one-half-inch PVC pipe, and if you shove that into the middle of one of them swim noodles, it just is as perfect glove-tight fit you can get. Okay, And you get two end caps, just little end caps like you use in a sprinkler system. If your noodle's about 12 inches long, you want your pipe to be about 18 inches long. Inside that pipe, you take about... A six-inch piece of rebar or some other heavy metal rod, you put that in your 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 uh, PVC pipe, and you use PVC cement. And you cap both ends on it, and now what you do is instead of tying it to the noodle, you tie it to the 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 bottom of the PVC pipe that sticks out the bottom of your noodle. So what you have is your PVC pipe almost all the way in on one side, just the end cap basically sticking out, which gives you a nice little ridge to tie your your uh, your fishing line to, your, your your main line, which again, I use like tarred bank line. And then your extra six inches sticks out the the other side. 
When you put your noodle in the water, let your weight go down. You want to make sure you have enough line that the weight is on the bottom. Then the float is holding the bait in the air. You just kind of shift it around until your piece of rebar holds your noodle flat. When a fish comes and pulls it, it'll pull the bottom down a little bit. The rod will slide inside the pipe to the bottom and the noodle will stand up. So basically, you can sit out there and when you see your noodle stood up, then you know to run. Go out and run your line. And I've never made those, but uh, I've seen a lot of form threads on making them. And as I get into fishing again pretty heavy, which is probably going to happen very soon, uh, I'm going to, instead of just making the standard ones, I'm going to start making those. And I'll tell you what, I love jug fishing enough. I pretty much can leave the rod and reel home when I do that. It, it's hard for me to do because, you know, you see a, a, a school surfacing or something, you want to have something to throw to them, but... I could spend 90% of my time just jug fishing and camping, and I'm a pretty happy guy. So that's probably the best way to catch a lot of fish. And again, um, drum and catfish are your two big species that you can do well with using those techniques, and catfish more than drum. Next one is called limb lining. I would say jug fishing is a lot like trapping, you know, with a coil spring trap or something like that. Limb lining is kind of analogous to running snares. It just seems the same way. Limb lining is best done, in my opinion, uh, in lakes that have deep shorelines with lots of woody over, you know, woody overgrowth. Or really, the best thing is streams and getting on the side of the stream that has a cutout that we talked about when we talked about structure and river fishing. A lot of streams you'll look at streams and rivers where you have a shallow side and a deep side. Instead of being deep in the middle like you generally would think of, you cut back out under the bank. And those steep banks, you either can access from above and do this, or you can get in a little john boat or something, float down the river is the best way to do it. And, uh, oh, let me go back to jug fishing just a second, because I really didn't explain the rigging there. The way I rig my jugs is I come down on that bank line. So it's a big, thick line you'd have a hard time putting a... Uh, a uh, hook on right and the fish really wouldn't want that either and what i'll do is i put a dropper loop which is a loop that stands off to the side however far off the bottom i want to be and there's lots of schools of thoughts with jug fishing some people like six hooks on them a lot of people only do one i'll never do more than two because when you're pulling a fish in if you've got hooks that are above the fish that fish can pull that hook into your hand and i generally don't do two i do one And I generally use kale-style hooks on my jugs. And you can look those up if you're not familiar with them from our uh, gear episode. But it's K-H-A-L-E, kale. And they're kind of compromised between a circle hook and a J-hook. Um, and that's, that's what I generally use is kale hook. On that dropper loop, what I'll do is I'll put on there, before I tie the loop, a big snap swivel. Fairly large one. So I've got... The, the line going through the eye of the snap swivel and the snap itself hanging off. And then I'll use snells. I'll tie a bunch of snells up with my kale hooks. Or if I'm lazy, I'll just use bait holders that already are pre-snelled. And that way I can just undo the snap and put the line on. Okay? Just put the snelled hook on, which is a snelled hook is a hook that's pre-tied to monofilament, usually about 12 inches of monofilament. You got a hook on one end and a loop on the other end. And then you can just undo that snap swivel and put that loop on there. Now, the reason I do that is catfish spin. 
When a catfish is caught and it's just there fighting for a while, they just start twirling like, a, like an alligator death roll. And if you don't have a swivel on there, that son of a gun will spin the shit out and just, just mess up your line on you. But if that swivel's there to let him turn over, he's kind of spinning for no reason. And you're a lot less likely to have tangles and, and hang-ups. Here's the other nice thing about this. When you have that snap swivel on there, and you go and you pull your jug in, and there's a nice catfish on there, instead of jacking around taking the hook out of that catfish's mouth and, and messing around while you're trying to run your lines, you grab the line, you undo the snap swivel, you take the snelled hook with, still in the catfish's mouth, and you drop his ass in the cooler of the live well with a hook in his mouth. Okay, You have pre-baited some more snelled hooks hanging in a place where they're convenient to grab. You grab your newly baited hook, you put it back on your snap swivel, you throw it back in the water, the jug is redeployed, and you go on about your way. When you're done running your jug lines, and you get back, you take that latest group of fish you've just caught, grab your needle-nose pliers, extract all the hooks, Put the fish back in whatever storage facility or clean them or do whatever you're going to do with them. And then those are your hooks you rebate for your next run. And you haven't had to touch a hook while you did your run, especially if you're doing this alone. If you have a driver and a fisherman, running jugs is real, real easy. If you're running drugs by yourself, this really maximizes your efficiency. So now back to limb lines. Because limb lines, I always run a snap swivel as well. With a limb line, what I'm looking for is a green limb on a live tree that comes out over the water. And I'm just going to tie a line onto that. And I can do that, again, with tarred bank line. Going to a, a snelled hook is my favorite way to do it. It's less likely to get tangled and twisted and crap like that. It's easier to work with, and you only got a little piece of mono. right? That line goes with, you know, you can do anything you want with a hook. But again, I like kales for this. Uh, but I, a lot of times I'll use a bait holder hook. And the reason I use a bait holder hook is I can buy them from Eagle Claw pre-snelled. I would love to find pre-snelled kale hooks. If anybody can find those for me, I'd love to know where they are because I don't like sitting around tying snells. It's a pain in the ass. So I prefer a kale, but a lot of times I'll, I'll, I'll cheap out and I'll use the, the bait holders just so I don't have to sit there tying snells. And uh, again, a snell hook is a hook with a piece of monofilament and a loop. That way I can hook right into it. And I'll put a big snap swivel on the end of that piece of bank line. And then you, you, you go ahead and attach it. And you bait it however you're going to. Some places you'd use some weight. Some places you wouldn't. And, and this is where you can get creative with this. Some places you want to be on the bottom. Some places you want to be off the bottom. If you're in a boat and you have a pole. Like just a rod. Like a pole you would pole yourself down the river with. You can put it in the water. And you can see how deep the water is. If the limb comes out over the water and you know the water's six foot deep, and the limb is two feet above the water, uh, and you put eight feet on, that bait's going to lay right on the bottom. If you put seven foot of line out, including the snell, it's going to sit a foot, a foot off the bottom and just hover there. When that fish takes that bait, it works a lot like the jug does. See, when the fish takes that bait and runs with it, that jug gives and then it kind of pulls the hook into the fish's mouth. Well, the same thing happens with this green limb. They grab the bait and they take off with it, And when they do that, this limb gives to a point where it kind of pulls back. And that's a very, very good hook set ratio on limb lines. That's why they might be illegal where you are. If they're not illegal, a lot of times you need to have a tag with your gear. 
and your state and your locality will tell you what has to be there. In my case, that's be my name, my address, and my phone number. has got to be tagged and on any limb lines that I use. And there's a limit to how many you can put out. And game wardens take this stuff seriously. Now, a lot of places you'd be doing this, you may never see a game warden. The best place to do limb lines is slow-moving streams. The typical southeastern, swampy, bayou-style places where you can get in with a little john boat and go up and down your banks and run your lines. They are awesome for that. And if you do what I'm saying, you use a bank line, a tarred nylon bank line, go into a snell hook with a snap swivel, you run your lines the same way you do when you run jugs. You pull up, there's a fish on that one. You pull that fish in, open your snap swivel, take the fish, holding onto the monofillet, never even touch the fish. Fish goes into the fish place, new line goes on, it's already pre-baited back in the water, and go on out your way. Really, really cool, really, really easy, really, really fun. Now, both of those methods are traditional methods of fishing. You say, well, where did, where did like my ancient ancestors get themselves a, a jug from, Jack? They didn't have no jugs like we did. They didn't have milk jugs. There wasn't no milkman delivering them in them little milk crates. By the way, those milk crates are awesome. If you're using milk jugs, you get the old-style milk crates, four jugs fit in there just like they always did. If you're using noodles, about a dozen rolled up with those weights that I talked about fit in there vertically. So you just have this one milk jug thing, you can have 12-year uh, uh, noodle jugs. That's why I like noodle jugs look better. They take up less space. Um, just a little aside there. But the truth is our ancestors had a lot of things that floated. You can build a jug line out of a log. If you have a piece of wood that floats, you can tie something onto it and build a jug line out of it. If you have a gourd, you can build a jug line. Anything that will float. A piece of bamboo makes a great jug. So you take a section of cane bamboo that's capped on both ends, you've got a jug. A piece of PVC pipe capped on both ends also makes a great jug. I was working on like a fishing kit, like a backpacking fishing kit one time, and I was working on ways to build basically mini jugs out of small PVC where the lines were stored inside and you sealed the PVC with a screw-on cap. And I just got one of those things I got sidetracked from and never did, but... Jug fishing and limb lining are very, very traditional ways people used to catch fish. And they would come up with all different types. Long before we had, you know, modern hooks, different types of bones sharpened different ways to make hooks. And the people used to have to make hooks out of hand. Now, an, ad an adaptation of those two methods that's definitely a modern one is called yo-yo fishing. Yo-yo fishing is basically limb lining with a device that reels fish in and ups your catch ratios. Um, a yo-yo is a little metal device that's spring-loaded. And you, you hang it from where you're fishing, and you run your hook off of it, and you, you run your line out to whatever length you want it out to with a bait on it, and you leave it there. The difference between a limb line and a yo-yo is when that fish takes that limb line, that fish has as much line as you've given it. The disadvantage of that is if there's anything underneath the water that that fish can wrap around, You can bet he's going to figure out how to wrap around it. And once the fish gets wrapped around something, usually they're going to break the line off or get off the hook. So if there's a big bunch of logs or something like that, that fish is likely to end up tangled around it. And even if he doesn't get off, you may not be able to get him out without getting really wet and nasty and disgusting. A yo-yo, when that fish takes that line, that yo-yo will let him take a little bit and it'll start to retract. 
And every time that fish stops pulling, it'll retract a little bit more. And it's a one-way deal. It's like uh, it's like a pull string. You ever had or uh, like a drape? Your blinds, you know, once you pull them down and you start letting it go back up, it just keeps going back up. You can't pull it down until you reset it. Well, this doesn't have a reset button on it. So once it starts going up, until you manually reset it, it's going to keep pulling that fish closer and closer to the surface. So what that does is is it keeps that fish from getting wrapped around shit. That's really it's that's one big advantage. The other big advantage is since it reels itself in so nicely, it's really convenient for you to have you can have a dozen of these things, you know, in a little small box. And they don't get tangled up and twisted because they stay retracted and then you can hang them up and deploy them as you need to. I think, once again, they should be used with a snap swivel and a snell hook. It just makes sense. And if you just think about the utility of being able to pull up, grab a line, unhook it, drop the fish in the bucket, put a new line on, put it back out, and go on about your business. Uh, Yo-yos and limb lining take you past, though, the world of catfish and drum. You'll catch a lot of them, but you can catch anything. It'll take a bait. And you tend to with, with that type of fishing. And you occasionally pick something up on a jug out in a catfish or a drum or a gar, but not that often. I'm not sure why, but with limb lining, you, you'll pick up crappie, you'll pick up bass, and uh, the same with yo-yos. And it may or may not be legal to keep those fish. It all depends on your local jurisdiction. Now, just real quick, I said that some people might actually want to consider a commercial fishing license. There's actually some money to be made fishing even fresh water with commercial license, at least in the state of Texas. I think it used to be used to be that if you had a commercial license in Texas for fin fish, which includes fresh and salt water, and that doesn't mean all fish. Like there's a there's all kinds of commercial licenses for different species and things, but it, you know it applied to fresh water too, and it still does. And it used to be, I thought anyway, that if you had that license, you could take up to 50 channel catfish uh, in in the state of Texas. Uh, whereas a, a private person can only take 25, and the, there's what's called a possession limit, how many you can have on you in the field uh, of 50 for a private person. It was 100 for commercial. It's now the same. I don't know if I'm wrong about what it used to be or if it changed. But the big thing a commercial license lets you do is sell your catch legally. If you are fishing as a private citizen, fish, you know, fish or game, in the state of Texas, in most states, selling the what you what you get is illegal. Um, whereas if you have this commercial license, you're doing it for commercial purposes. And, uh, I mean, if you're running good jug lines or good limb lines or, or good trot lines, you can make a little bit of money catfishing. You really can. Um, you ain't gonna become rich, but I mean, for a person that was like semi-retired or something or had a little pension, um, it is actually a way to make a little bit of money. I know some older guys that do it. The license is like 360 bucks a year. Um, of course that's tax deductible because now you're in the business of selling fish, just Just a thought, I'd throw that out there. The next uh, type of uh, fishing is called trot lining. Now, a lot of people call it trout lining. I, I don't really know where anybody came up with that, but it's a trot, like a, a horse trot, a trot line. And this is basically a great big long line with a bunch of, think of them like limb lines hanging off of it. And uh, these, the, what you want to do with these is you find an area, and you got to mark these if there's any possibility that a boat might run into it, because you don't want that to happen. You don't want to cause problems for anybody else. You don't want them to cause problems for you. These have to be tagged like anything else that I've talked about so far. 
and you run that line in an area where you know there's a high concentration of catfish, this might be a place you really chum well. And every so many feet off that main line, you have lines that come down into the water with a hook and a bait. And trot lining is very, very effective way to catch catfish. And again, this is one of those things where I like using a snelled hook on a main line with a swivel. Any good catfisherman that runs trot lines will tell you, if you don't use swivels, you deserve what you get, which is a mess. You need swivels on these because these fish twist. And when you have 25 lines hanging off one main line um, and you don't have swivels and they start twisting, well, you get real, real problems. Now, unlike, though, um, just using the snap swivel and the snell hook, there is – I'm not a big trot line guy. I, I've always found it to be more trouble than doing jug fishing or limb lines, and I found both of those to just be just as effective and a lot more flexible, a lot easier to keep everything straight. Really good guys with trot lines. They have really good organizational systems to keep everything together. What I've seen the best guys do, they keep all their hooks and bait lines separate. And their trot line is just a line, and they put that line out, and they got maybe bead markers or something, so it's really easy to know where to put their lines on. And they make these quick-release clips that you basically squeeze, and they go over kind of like a uh, like a clothesline, like a clothespin, but they're much more secure than that. You put them over, and then when you release it, attention, they hold on the line. That way, when these guys run their trot lines, they just take the whole line off with the fish, you know, and bring the fish into the boat rebate with new lines and then, you know, take care of the fish and get the hooks out later. And I think in all of these methods that I've given you, when you're dealing with fish on a long rope and unconventional methods, having a way to remove the line with the fish and not deal with the hook when you have other fish jerking things around, stuff flopping around the boat, is a real safety issue. It's not just convenience. It's not just efficiency. It's a good way to not end up with a hook buried in the palm of your hand. So that's that's definitely something to think about there. Trot lining I won't say much more on because it pretty much works the same way, except you have this one massive line. And I know guys that are really good at it, and they swear by it, but I just can't see a big advantage over uh, jug fishing, honestly. Next up is noodling. These are crazy people that stick their head inside a giant hole and grab onto a 75-pound catfish by the mouth while their buddies hold onto their ankles and yank them out. It's dangerous, and people do get hurt, and people do die doing it. Um, but like most things that are a little bit dangerous, it's usually a little bit less dangerous than it's presented on TV or in the news or by people that do it. But these guys do get tore up pretty good with those sandpaper-like teeth and those big cats. And noodling uh, is something that's illegal in a lot of states. It's legal in some. It's legal in Oklahoma, for instance. It's one of the probably the ground zero of catfish noodling in the country. And noodling works this way. When catfish want to spawn, they're generally bigger catfish. And they like to find cutouts in banks, so a big hole. And what these guys do is they walk around in the water, usually wading up to about their, their waist or chest high, and they, they look for holes. And when they find a hole, one way or another they get a hand or a foot in there and try to piss the catfish off and get it to bite them. Yes, I'm serious. And when it bites them, if they got their hand down in there anyway, they grab onto it, and then the fish bites back and holds on. And that fish starts trying to twist their damn arm off, and eventually they try to pull that fish out of the water. No hook, no bait, no nothing. Um, the seasons and limits are very strict because it's so effective and because you're always taking a spawning fish, basically. So you're, you're taking the breeder if you take a fish that way. There's big tournaments. 
It seems like a really fun thing to do. I have to say I've never done it. I have grabbed a fish or two out of the water. And uh, I've got other ways I've gotten fish out of the water out of rod and reel or any equipment at all. I may or may not admit to. Um, but uh, this this looks like a fun thing to do. But to me, it's a, it's a definitely a survival skill. If you ever got into a point where you needed food, as long as it was the right time of year and you knew how to do this, there is no doubt that with nothing but your hands, you can catch fish. And that's pretty cool. But it is so tightly regulated, and there is a reason for that. I mean, we do have to be honest about the fact you're taking breeder fish in the prime of their breeding out of the water if you if you keep them. And a lot of noodlers, they do it for the sport, they do it for tournaments, they maybe keep one fish a year, or they don't keep any fish at all. Um, you know, they're, they're weighed and released. A lot of these guys, I mean, if they took you with them, they're going to blindfold you until you get out into their area. They don't want to ever give away their secret little honey holes, and I understand why. The next type of fishing, that's it's really an ancient form of fishing, but it's gotten quite sophisticated. It's mostly done in salt water. Most places it would be illegal in most freshwater environments is spear fishing. Well, spear fishing is where we get in the water with a spear, and, and today we use a spear gun that usually uses rubber to propel it forward, but there's lots of ways that spears have been built by man in the past uh, and, and propelled by man in the past underwater. And we find a fish that we want, and we point the spear at it, we pull the trigger, and the spear hits the fish, and we take the fish and, and do whatever we want to with it, like eat it. Um, spear fishing, a lot of people that have never done it, I think it's just real easy, and it's like shooting fish in a barrel. It's not like shooting fish in a barrel. It's like shooting a fish in the ocean. Now, it is true that certain species of fish are pretty easy to get pretty close to, and you can get a shot off pretty easy, uh, but some not so much. It also has an inherent danger. If you're in salt water and you've shot a spear through a fish, then that fish doesn't just go, oh, okay, you can take me home now, unless you hit it with a kill shot. Usually, the fish isn't dead, or even if it's going to die, it's flipping around. While it's flipping around, blood and scales and fish slime are going all over the place. And there's these other fish called sharks that are like, hmm, what is that? So the spear fisherman always has to be mindful of the sharks. Uh, spear fishing something I did a little bit of when I was stationed in Panama. I liked it because I don't dive. Uh, and I did dive at one time in my life, but because I haven't kept my certification up, I don't have equipment, I don't spend time diving. I think the last time I went diving was 1994 or something like that. Um, I, ha I don't do it often, but it is cool, and it is something to consider. And There are lakes and rivers around here that are clear enough that you could do it in fresh water, And I'm not saying to do it because I don't know any place, and I could be wrong, but I don't know any place where it's legal to spear fish in fresh water. Um, I have a hard time understanding why it wouldn't be for trash fish like carp, um, other than where you might find carp, you probably aren't going to get in the water and be able to see them and swim underwater with them. You usually find them in back eddies and stuff like that. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe there's some place it's legal. But if you had the gear, you knew how to do it, and you went diving or snorkeling and did it frequently in the ocean, and you ever needed the skill in freshwater, it certainly would work. It also makes me think back to that stupid show called Survivor. Remember that reality TV thing? That thing still might be going on. I don't remember who or what the specifics were, but in, I think, the first season, there was some guy 
that one of the things he was able to get on the island with was a spear gun. He was pretty popular. He might even be the fat gay guy that won, um, that was too dumb to pay his taxes. And if anybody's gay and takes offense by that, I'm just describing the guy. I'm not saying anything bad about him being gay, but I think he was a fat gay guy named Richard, and I think that was the guy with the spear gun. And uh, I think what happened to him was he won all the money and didn't pay any taxes on it and was surprised when the IRS showed up because he was an idiot. Because if you win a million dollars on national television, IRS going <laughs> to about it. Anyway, um, the next type is, is trapping. And uh, trapping, actual trapping of fish, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do it. Uh, one simple way. It's just by cutting a bunch of limbs to a certain size and basically making a gate up against shore. So you, you surround an area with an opening, and then you bait that gate. And most of the time, a fish will follow the smell into that gate, but will have a hard time figuring out how to get back out of it. Um, it's only moderately effective because if the fish can swim in, it can swim out. You can do some things, though, like create a funnel that has, like, Some, some branches coming in so that they're coming in at an angle, so they're lateral, they're horizontal in the water, so the fish is very easily funneled in but has to hit the hole perfectly to get out. That works well with a lot of fish that are active at night, like catfish and, and, the, and other fish like that that will move way up into the shallows at night. It also tends to do pretty well capturing turtles, and that's kind of a low-tech version, and there's all kinds of it. There's something called a slat box. And a slat box traditionally was made out of wood, and it was designed a lot like what I just said. It would be shaped like a barrel, and it would have slats that pointed in like a modern wire cage minnow trap. And uh, these things could be anywhere from a couple feet long to six feet long. And they would be baited, and they're pretty effective at catching catfish, and they're pretty much effective at catching anything that will go after a dead bait. Uh, they work quite well. Some places are legal. A lot of places are illegal. And a lot of times things can be repurposed to be used as a fish trap. For crab fishing, they make these, and if you've probably seen big ones, they call them pots. Um, the, you know, they're used by like the commercial, uh, you know, people that fish for king crab and snow crab and things like that. But there's smaller ones that are more like the size for a blue crab. And they just look like a big wire cage. And there's a basket in them where you put your bait, and there's some funnels around them where the crabs can get in. And once the crab gets in, he has a hard time getting out. Well, fish go in those things, too. Um, so trapping is an option. And basically, there are commercially available traps you can purchase or you can build your own. Um, next up, nets. Nets are something that have a really bad reputation, somewhat deservingly, when you use something like a gill net where you string this net out for half a mile and it just catches and kills everything that gets in it. But I'm thinking more along the lines of dip nets and cast nets. Now, I've said I've gotten fish out of the water before without a fishing pole uh, or some of these other things, and one way I've done it was with dip nets. Uh, I've snuck up on a bank, seen a trout in the water, come over from the top and dip net that sucker out of there. It's a hell of a lot easier to catch them by hand, and it can be done. But dip nets generally don't work real well for that. I have used them very effectively for catching crabs, though. And not the way I told you about when we did the, uh, you know, the surf fishing and bay fishing stuff, where you're using like a piece of chicken on a string and you pull it in and you dip net the crab. There are some beaches that have piers, 
and the piers have pylons that come down into the water. And as the tide goes out, those pylons will form these little pools. Jacksonville Beach, Jacksonville, Florida, where I grew up, when those pools would form, a lot of times crabs would be in those pools. And they would be either blue crabs or a leopard crab. And both are good eating if they're large enough. And usually as you kind of got close to them, they'd kind of bury themselves in the sand a little bit. But you could usually see like a claw or a flipper sticking out and dip net. It's that simple and there's a crab. If you're going to do this, same thing I said in the show on bays and lakes. You get a piece of string and basically give your dip net a ponytail. And what I mean by that is you tie that string about halfway down the net because you don't need that big of a deep net to get a crab in there. And you got a ponytail now below where that string's tied. And that way when you flip the net over to shake the crab into uh, a cooler or a bucket, he doesn't have as far to come out so there's less for him to get tangled in. But you've got a little ponytail you can grab onto and shake him out of there without getting bit because they will bite the hell out of you. Cast nets, though, are awesome. Also highly illegal in freshwater in many places or illegal for game fish in many places. But they are a great way to get bait, which is important for catching other fish. So if you were jug fishing or limb lining or trot lining for channel catfish, one of the best baits you can get your hands on is shad. So knowing how to throw a cast net gives you an almost endless supply of bait. Um, shad's pretty cheap. You can buy it, but nothing works like fresh shad does. Um, especially when shad is fresh and dead... It's soft and mushy and comes off the hook a bit too easy. But when it's when it's dead and it's been previously frozen, the way most shad you'll get your hands on for, for bait is it's really mushy. Like you can just take it and break it, and it just breaks in half. So if you go out and get yourself a bucket full of shad and hook them up, you can even have them still alive. They usually die pretty quick. They don't last alive very long, especially in these types of fishing situations. But it's a much fresher bait, and it's free. Um, and, you know, if you're good with a cast net, I'm just going to say, if you ever got in hard times, if you can throw a cast net well, and you can spot and stalk fish, and you know what you're doing, it is a very effective way to catch fish. And I'll leave it at that, right? There are times when feeding your family and feeding yourself is more important than what the law has to say, and there's times that are normal, good times, when the law matters, I'll leave it at that. In fact, I'll tell you a little story real quick here. Nothing, nothing to do with fishing. Um, there was a, a, a friend of my grandfather's that was an Irish guy. And, uh, like, I think he was, his dad was from the old country. And he was born in the United States, but he grew up around the Irish. And where I was from, you were either, you're either Georgian, right? And I mean the country, or there was to be part of the Soviet Union. You were Lithuanian. You were Ukrainian, you were Dutch, or you were Irish. There was only five things that you were if you lived in this area. And everybody had their own little communities. And the Irish certainly didn't. They still had the Irish accent and all. And we were talking about some. I can't remember exactly how we got to the subject. But we were talking about gardens and cornfields and the deer eating all the crops. And I said, well, what did you do about the deer back then? And this guy grew up during the Great Depression. And he said, there no deer, boy. <laughs> right? And I said, what? He goes, there weren't no deer. There weren't no deer problems. He said, if there was a deer back then, we shot it. And I said, uh, well, isn't it illegal to shoot deer just to shoot deer? And he said, oh, you're a good boy. <laughs> right? You know, your grandpa taught you well. And he goes through this thing, and basically he says, I want you to think about your ethics and your morals here. 
And he said, uh, he said, right now, would you go out and just shoot a bunch of deer? And I said, no, because it's illegal and we got to protect them and make sure they're around and all. He says, yeah, you're a good boy. You get that. He goes, if your family was hungry and you could shoot a deer to feed them, would you worry about the law or would you worry about feeding your family? And I said, well, I'd worry about feeding my family. He goes, and you, you're, you're an ethical man, yes? You know, and I'm, yeah, I'm an ethical guy. And he goes, he goes, so how is that conflicting in your ethics? You know, basically he was asking about my ethics. And I said, well, the ethics of obedience to the law are one thing, but the ethics of caring for my family are another. So that's what I'm trying to say with some of these things. If we ever get in a hard way, then ethics take on a new perspective, And as long as you're not hurting anybody, I think it's more important to feed your family than to not use a cast net. Okay. Uh, another example of this that my grandfather told me I've talked about before were squirrel traps is what he called them. I found a bunch of these big rat traps, heavy duty. They were made out of oak plank, old rusty rat traps. But they all had a hole, about a quarter inch hole, drilled through the, the wood. And I said, well, Grandpa, what's the hole for? He says, them squirrel traps. And I said, well, how do they work? He said, well, back back in the Depression, we were hungry, and we would take these traps, these rat traps, drill a hole in them, and you take a nail, put it through the hole, and you nail them to the side of a tree. And then you put a little bit of peanut butter on them, and you set the trap. And the squirrel, when he's going up the tree, would go to grab that peanut butter and get trapped. And by keeping it up off the ground, dogs didn't get into it, cats didn't get into it, things like that. And, you know, you could just go out and take your squirrel out and reset it. I said, well, how did they work? He said, good for about two years. I said, well, what happened after two years? He said, there weren't no squirrels no more. So when we talk about fishing, we're talking about it for two different things, surviving and thriving. Today is thriving. Tomorrow may be surviving. I just want to put it in perspective for you before we go forward. The next one is another example of that, bow fishing. Bow fishing is legal in most states for what they consider to be a trash fish. Generally, these are drum and carp and gar. Um, but if you can bow fish, you can kill any fish with a bow that you can see. And bow fishing takes practice, and it takes a lot of work to get good at. It takes every time you think, this is my experience with the bow fishing, Every time you think you've got the refraction down, you don't. I'll put it that way. The, the angle changes a little bit. The depth of the fish changes a little bit. The distance changes a little bit. And where you have to hold to hit the fish changes a little bit. And a little bit is a miss. And the best way to start to get a because this is instinctual. I can tell you all day long, but especially in an audio, you're not going to get it. Um, and this is true for, for spearfishing. If you're not under the water with the fish, too, because spearfishing can also be above the water. Uh, a bow fishing arrow and an atlatl, I never really thought of that, but that would work quite well. Anyway, when you're, you're above the water and you're using a projectile to hit a fish, the best way to understand it is go to a place where there's nice, clear water that's fairly deep and get a stick and put the stick a couple feet in the water and sit there and look at it. And what you'll see is the stick will enter the water at one angle. And if you're standing behind it and putting it in the water a little bit angled out from you, that angle will increase outward. And it will look like the stick bends. And where you're looking at where the tip of the stick is, that stick is actually 
closer to you than it appears. Which means if you were shooting at that spot, you have to hold underneath it. Okay? And this all takes on interesting dynamics because, fine, that's a stationary fish. What if the fish is swimming towards you versus away from you? The lead and the illusion changes. It's a very much um, a skill that takes a lot of time to get good at. Uh, the way we practice is we would take beer cans and we would put them in water you could see and we would shoot at beer cans. And when we did that, we would tip our fishing arrows with a blunt tip instead of a fishing tip so they would just smash the can And that way they wouldn't have stuck in the ground or whatever because you weren't actually shooting at a fish and you didn't need to be messing up your good tips. So we'd put a, a blunt tip on and we would shoot at cans and water at various distances at different depths. Um, and then we would go out and usually we would fish for carp. Now, back when I did this, I didn't have any appreciation for carp at all. And I killed a lot more carp than I should have because, well, unless you're in a place where they're really invasive like the silver carp are on the Mississippi, um, they're not the problem that they're made out to be. And they're actually, if they're in clean water, they're a pretty damn good fish to eat. They're the most eaten fish in the world. I didn't totally waste them all, though. Some were used for fertilizer. Some were fed to animals. And what I mainly did, we didn't shoot a lot of them, is they would get cut up and frozen in chunks, and they were my bait for my trap lines. So you start to see how you can stack functions uh, even in this world. Uh, but bow fishing is really a specialized sport, I guess is the word I was looking for it. The next one that I want to talk about is gigging. And gigging has a little bit of that refraction thing going on too, but you're, you're going to be obviously closer, so the, and you're going to be in, in water where you can reach them with a gig, so there's less of it, and a lot of times you're hitting stuff that's right near the surface, so you, you get pretty good gigging right away. But gigging can take on kind of a spear fishing from above type of thing as well. It's usually illegal for fishing in most places. There's a lot of places where, like, you can gig in salt water for certain species at certain times. And the one that's the most popular is flounder. And there's usually a strict season, a strict limit, and what have you. But flounder are flat fish. They lay on the bottom. They're pretty easy if you're, you're careful about getting over them with a boat to get over. And a lot of guys gig a lot of flounders uh, every year, every season. Some people actually gig certain species of crabs. My favorite thing to gig, <laughs> and it, it, I don't consider it a fish, but it's kind of like it's, it's fishing, and I've done it a lot while fishing or while not catching fish and decided to do something else, is, is frogs. And uh, I, I think they kind of fit in this space. Usually you do it from a boat. And what we would do, this is usually when we would be in a place where we were out fishing and we weren't catching anything. And we'd hear marump, marump. And there's bullfrogs everywhere. I would come to flashlight in the gig and use a trolling motor on slow speed and cruise the shoreline, find the frog, shine a light in his eyes, and gig his butt. And, uh, man, I love frog legs. And that's a great thing in some places. It's illegal to do that. Understand this. you got to check everywhere what your, you know, your regulations are. Some places there's limits. Some places there's not much of a limit on frogs. Some places there's a season. Some places there's not much of a season. But gigging is cool. I'll just say that. And it's a good thing to know how to do, and it is a very inexpensive thing to possess. It's a good frog gig or fish gig. 
because you only have a little piece, the tip on the end, and all you do is fabricate a pole for it. If I was going to have survival gear, especially out in the wilderness, a gig might be something that made it in to my pack, along with something like snares and rat traps. And even mouse traps are good to have because they can be used to make triggers. But we'll let that go for right now. I'm just saying, but gigging. The last one I'm going to call beer can fishing. You fish with a beer can? No. It's hand lining. It's a good skill to have. It's a good skill to get good at. And basically, there's a lot of different ways you can do hand lining. But the reason I call it beer can fishing is a beer can is one of the best impromptu fishing reels you can get your hands on. You get a line tied on a, on a beer can, and you just start winding the line on it. And you wind it and wind it and wind it and wind it and wind it until you have all your line that you want to have on your can wound up. And you rig up, and you need some kind of a weight or a bait with some decent weight to it with one of these. And you take that line and you throw it with your, if you're right-handed, anyway, you would throw with your right hand. A lot of times you give it kind of a whip. You throw it, and you point the can in the direction that you've thrown. And it's, it's remarkable how far you can get a line out that way and keep it neat. And you kind of let that line spool off of that can, and you keep your thumb over it. And as it starts to be at the end of it, you kind of stop it like a bait casting reel. And when you catch a fish, you reel him in with the can. Just a two-handed motion. Now, the most dramatically successful example of this I've ever seen, one day I saw a guy catch quite a few big carp. And he was catching carp, and he was a Mexican guy, and apparently he knew carp were good eating. Because he kept like four, I mean, big-ass carp. I'm talking 20, 25 pounders. In fact, I saw this guy catching these fish with this, this beer can, And I was so interested that I pulled my boat up to shore and I went over and talked to him. And I said, what are you doing? He showed me. He had made a dough bait out of basically water, cornflakes, and honey was his bait. He had a hook, bait holder hook, some 20-pound monofilament, and a beer can. <laughs> That was it. And he didn't even have a weight because that, that dough bait was pretty heavy dough bait. And he was whipping that thing probably 40 feet at least out off this shoreline he was fishing. And he was just sitting there under a tree, listening to Tejano music, drinking beer and making more beer cans to fish with, and, and catching these carp. And he said, yeah, I'll catch, you know, half a dozen. That'll be enough, and, and we'll take them home and, and fix them up. And I asked him, I said, well, how do you prepare them? And he said, well, what we usually do is we fillet them out as best we can. There's some bones in them. And then we, we, we steam them and soften the bones, and we generally make things out of more like a fish cake is what they did with these fish. And uh, he seemed pretty happy with himself. And I have an understanding that carp are decent eating fish and that they have a much maligned reputation and all, but I'm not lining up to eat carp because there's so many other fish I can easily catch that I think are better quality fish to eat. But I want you to think about this. This man with an old beer can... One hook, okay, dollar worth of fishing line at the most, a dollop of honey, a couple handfuls of cornflakes, and, uh, well, a little bit of water, had 40 to 60 pounds of fish sitting at his feet from a public access lake that anybody can fish. That was all he had. Now, if we got on really hard times for everybody, 
that type of thing would get figured out pretty quick. And even fish that we have an abundant surplus there, like carp, would start to become pressured very, very quickly. But think about our history lesson today. When the Black Plague hit, it either hit a town here or a town there or a town here or a place where it wasn't affected. Usually, no matter how bad things are, it's situational. And I'll tell you one thing about this guy. As long as he can figure out how to get himself to that lake or another one like it, this man and his family will not go hungry until everybody's gone hungry. Now, you can put down carp and you can put down people that eat carp and you can mock somebody that's fishing with a, a beer can and not doing it just because it can be done because that's what they have. But that man can feed himself from our lakes and quite well. And I'll bet you if that was what you had to work with, if your primary protein source was carp, I bet you'd get pretty creative with it pretty fast. And I bet there's a lot of different things you could do with it to change up what you're eating every day. And carp has a really good amount of fat in addition to just raw protein. So you can subsist on it. I wouldn't advise it as your sole source, but you can subsist on it pretty well. And there's something to be learned in that story of that guy with that old beer can. Right? I think it was a bush can. It wasn't even a good beer. Of course, most good beers don't come in can. They come in bottles. But you get my point. It worked. It worked. And that was his solution to a problem. And I have to tell you, I've seen people fishing that you can tell it's not just a hobby. That it is a way that they put food on their table. There was a night we were down in, uh, in Corpus Christi. We're on the bay side, not out on the island. And uh, we were down there as contractors for MCI, and we ended up stuck for like a week where the equipment might come, the equipment might not come. So do you want us to stay or do you want us to leave? Stay. Well, if you're stay if we're staying, you're paying us 40 hours a week. Fine, we'd rather pay you to sit there and do nothing than not have you there when the stuff finally shows up. So we ended up with like four days, nothing to do, before they realized, hey, a weekend's coming, stuff ain't going to be there till next week, go home. So they paid us for a week, and we went fishing. Um, and we weren't cheating. That was the deal. Do whatever you want, but don't leave. Okay, fine. So we went out and got rods and stuff, and we were fishing, and the sand trout came in on a pier, and the sand trout were running like crazy. Sand trout are a great fish, by the way. And um, not sea trout, they're sand trout. They're kind of pinkish. They have four big canine teeth, kind of look like little dog teeth in them. And, uh, man, we were just hitting them and hitting them and hitting them. And we had hit them like two nights in a row. We all had fish filleted, put away, ready to take home for the weekend. And we went out last night before we were going to leave in the morning, and, and we hit them again. And we ended up with this stringer. It took two of us to pull the stringer up because we just had the stringer hanging. We disconnected from the dock and dropped a fish down it. We didn't realize how many were on there. We pulled this up. There's four of us, and there's like 80 fish. And... uh We looked at this stringer fish, thought about all the fish that we had, and said to ourselves, we, we don't, why do we keep these damn things? You know, we kind of felt bad. We're like, let's see if we can give them away. Because nobody wanted to clean them. And we certainly weren't going to, you know, most of them were dead or had been on the stringer long enough, they probably weren't going to survive if we let them go. So we weren't going to let them go to waste. We would clean them if we had to. Well, we talked to this dude, and we're talking to him, and he's there fishing, And uh, he had a big old cooler, and he's sitting on it and just sitting there listening to music and fishing. And I said, "What do you like sand trout? He goes, oh, man, some nights they take almost 100 of them home from here. And I said, well, would you like to take 100 of them home tonight? He goes, man, I really, I really could use them, but 
I think I missed the run, you know, because they would come in waves. And he said, I think I missed the run tonight. I had to work, and I, I got here pretty late. I've only caught one. And I said, we got a great big stringer of them we don't want to clean. Would you like them? This man's face lit up. His eyes got huge. And when he saw that stringer of fish, he was just like, wow, man, thanks. So it was just a rope that we had made a stringer out of. It wasn't like a like a official stringer. So he starts going to take them over. Let's just take the whole thing. So he took that whole stringer of fish, and he put it into his cooler. And as we're packing up, a friend of his was there with him. We hadn't noticed him. The two of them packed their shit, each grabbed a handle of that cooler, and they, they left. They went home. They were done. They were there for one reason and one reason only, extra food for the family. And... As I kind of wrap up the, the mechanical aspect of fishing, we're going to do one more in this series on cooking and, and have some fun with that. I want to wrap this series on fishing up on a, kind of an understanding that that's what this can be. If you're running around in a $50,000 bass boat, burning up $200 worth of fuel, there is no way fishing equals subsistence fishing equals keeping your family fed or even supplementing your family's food because you could have bought 200 pounds of fish for what you done spent to run that boat for that day. And you ain't going to come home with 200 pounds of fish. Done with intelligence and anything from a high-quality fish like a sand trout or crappie or catfish to what we consider a trash fish like a carp or a drum. And I've already talked about a drum are not a trash fish. Anybody talks trash about drum has never eaten properly prepared drum. Actually, what they probably have, they've eaten blackened redfish, which is a drum, And they turn around and mock a freshwater drum, which is basically the same fish. Anyway, drum's great eating fish. But whether it's that trash fish or whether it's a high-quality fish, with some creativity and some thought, fishing can go from being hobby to actually a way you help feed your family. And the reason I want to bring that back around is when I was growing up in Pennsylvania, we weren't dirt poor, but we were not wealthy. I would not even call us middle class. When I was... When I was 12, 13, 14 years old, if you said describe your family, I would have said, oh, we're middle class. Looking back now, I know we were not middle class. right? We were, we were bottom end, lower, lower, lower middle class, bearing on the poverty line is where we were. But we had fun, and honestly, you could live decent in the 70s and 80s compared to today on a working man's wage, on what like minimum wage or a little bit more was. You know, or an average wage for a blue-collar worker did more for you back then than it does today. And, and the whole family lived okay. And we had fun, and we, you know, we went out, and we went camping, and we did all these things. And we fished, and we hunted. And they were hobbies, but they were also seen as a source of meat. And I think we've lo that's another one of those things in America today that we've lost. The guy goes hunting, shoots a deer, has some sausage made out of it, gives it away to a bunch of buddies and all. It's not that big a deal anymore. But for a lot of people still today, you know, one more deer this year is the difference between lean times and fat times. That's how I grew up. That's why every member of our family had a hunting license, whether they hunted or not. And, you know, once my sister was 12 years old, she was forced You will go to a hunter safety class. You will get a hunting license. And then one of us would end up taking a deer with her tag. Now, that's technically illegal, but it kept us from getting arrested. And, again, I'm back to this ethics thing. It wasn't just because we want to kill a bunch of stuff. It was, okay, we've paid for this. And I know it's still wrong. 
but it was the way we looked at it at the time because it was the difference between a good winter and spring before the garden started producing and not having that and, and scraping by and figuring out what are we going to eat this week? What can we afford to buy this week? All that meat from the, from the, the, the water and the field mattered. Squirrels, rabbits, pheasants, grouse, and all the fish mattered. And the truth is, even with as many people as we have in this country today, only a small percentage have the knowledge and or the desire to acquire the knowledge to be proficient at taking fishing game. And we have an amazing resource in our wild places, in our lakes, our rivers, our streams, our bays, and our beaches. And fish can be an important part of our diets. And even with some of the health concerns, if you're talking about a meal a week, except for the really bad places to eat fish from, then you should check your water recommendations and all. It's, it's, no, it's no big deal because we're going to have toxins that we have to deal with anyway. Keeping the body healthy allows us to deal with toxins. And a meal a week or even a meal every two weeks is an expense you don't have. And if we ever get into a bad way, well, you may eat more fish than you think is healthy, but it may be what keeps you alive long enough to figure out what to do next. And I just wanted to finish with that in perspective. Because fishing can be fun. It can be a great bonding experience for parents and children. I've not met many little boys that aren't excited about going on their first fishing trip. But it also can be a way to feed your family, and I just wanted to end with that. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Revolution. 